Well, we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter this morning. As last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. As Peter was writing particularly to wives, and especially the situation of wives who are married to an unbelieving husband. What is their submission to that husband to look like? How's their relationship to look like uh, in particular? So we see uh, Peter in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 talking to all wives in the letter to submit yourselves to your own husbands. Uh, but then particularly in the rest of those verses, in the rest of verse 1 and through verse 6, describing the situations, well, what would women to do if they were in an unbelieving, had an unbelieving spouse? And Peter gives them incredible hope. And what that looks like in that situation. Peter now pivots in verse 7 to address husbands. And we see this in the single verse we'll be looking at this morning in chapter 3, verse 7. I will read it, uh, and then we will jump in. 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner. Showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. You hear Peter here addressing the very first word, husbands. He's turned now to the husbands that are sitting here in these churches across Asia Minor. This letter was being circulated through these churches. These churches that he had written to, remember in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 giving these churches the perspective of how to live as a Christian in a hostile word. He gives them these words, strangers, exiles, sojourner. This is the way in which you are to live in this hostile world, passing through, heading home. And as you are heading home, here's how you are living this world, in government, in your vocation, and within your marriage. That's what we've been walking through the last few weeks. As he describes the submission to government, submission to uh, masters, and then last week, submission to husbands. But you'll notice here in verse 7, this is the only of those relationships in which Peter turns then and speaks to the one in authority. In verses 13 to 17, he doesn't address governors or emperors and how they are, if they are Christians, to be able to lead in a Christian way. With masters and slaves, he doesn't write to masters or bosses if they are in Christian positions of how they are to lead. But here he turns to the husband, who as God has designed marriage, has a leadership position and authority within that role. And he addresses them. And so there's something we see that's particular about the relationship between a husband and wife that's different than a relationship with an emperor or with a boss. Uh, That submission is not just simple obedience like it would be for a child to an adult, a child to a parent. That's why in Colossians, as Paul's writing the church in Colossae, and he's describing these relationships, he tells children to obey their parents, but then he tells wives to submit to their husband. There's a different relationship that's there. So what is that to look like? Well, Peter's writing then to husbands to help both make sure there is an understanding and embrace of God's design for marriage and the relationship and role between a husband and wife, but to also help make sure that there is a safeguard that that authority and leadership isn't abused, but that a wife would be honored. This is really the two uh, main thrust of our text this morning in verse 7, as Peter is writing here and telling husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way, and then to live with them in an honoring way, in an understanding way, 
in an honoring way, showing them honor. And he's got other prepositions and clauses to help support both of those, but those are the two main things here. Live with your wives in an understanding way and live in an honoring way. You notice there that phrase, in the same way. Peter is not saying it's the exact same relationship a husband has to his wife that a wife has to her husband, but he's connecting it all the way back to verse 11 and 12. That in the same way, husbands, you are to live as strangers and exiles. Don't look around the Greco-Roman world and get your cues for how to treat your wife. No, in the same way, you're a stranger in exile here. Look to God and look to Christ and follow in his pattern. It's going to look strange to the world. And friends, this verse no doubt would have been strange in first century Greco-Roman world. Where wives were often seen as property. Where wives would often be left with no voice. Their testimony wouldn't even count in a court of law. Peter writes and tells them, you husbands, you must live in an understanding way with your spouse. You must show them honor because they are co-heirs of the grace of life. Friends, this would have been countercultural in the first century. Undoing the abuse of authority that would have been rampant in that society and is rampant even in some ways still today. Peter is saying, husbands, in the same way, live as strangers and exiles, following, heading home, following your Savior, Jesus, and how you are to relate with your wife. So how, then, are you to relate with your wife? How can you be an, a loving husband? Again, those are the two things that we'll be looking at this morning. Those two ways to live as a loving husband is to, one, live in an understanding way, and then, two, to live in an honoring way. To live in an understanding way and to live in an honoring way. Now, if you're here and you're a husband, maybe you've perked up. Maybe you've, maybe you've intentionally tuned me out by now. I'm not sure. You hear the directness of this text to you. God's Spirit inspiring Peter, turning your eyes and locking eyes with you. For this text is meant for you. Oh, maybe you're here and you're not a husband and you're going, well, this then obviously doesn't apply to me, so I will just wait for next week. Oh, but friend, if that's you, uh, this text does still certainly apply in a number of ways. If you are a wife, uh, this helps show the kind of relationship that you should be praying for and striving to cultivate, having conversations about. If you're here and you desire marriage and you're a man, oh, then, friend, this shows you, brother, this shows you what you are to begin to work towards and what a husband is to be. If you're here and you're a woman desiring marriage. Oh, this shows you the kind of husband you should be looking for. A culture will tell you to look for a whole lot of other things. How much money he may have, how funny he may be, uh, how great his social media profile may look. Oh, this text cuts through it all and goes, oh, sister, this is the kind of man to look for. And maybe you're here and marriage isn't on the horizon for you. Oh, friend, this text is still applicable to you both to hopefully encourage you in a world that throws God's design out the window, to be reminded of God's good design, to be reminded of God's truth in a world that's running in an opposite direction, and also to give words to pray for the husbands of our church, to pray these things, that the men in our church, husbands in our church, would live in this way. Over in this text reaches us all this morning. What we see particularly here, the, these husbands are given this address first to live with your wives in an understanding way. We're going to camp out here for the majority of our time. 
We're also going to talk about what it means to honor. We're going to, we're going to spend time here. This is, the main, this is the main thrust of what Peter's getting at here. Live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? I was talking to one woman about this verse in particular. I asked her to read 1 through 7 a couple weeks ago. I was like, can you read verses 1 through 7? I'm just curious. What are the things that jump out to you? What are the things that you have maybe questions about or seem unclear? Um, and she reads it, and I was expecting her to have a hard time with things in 1 through 6 or understanding. How does this apply to me? What exactly is Peter saying? She said, honestly, verse 7 is the most offensive part of this whole thing. Live in an understanding way. That a husband's supposed to come along and just kind of like, oh, I know you're kind of crazy, but I need to like put up with you because we're the weaker partner, the weaker vessel. She's like, this is ridiculous. Well, the reason why I'll often ask people to read the text and then just ask, what are the things that jump out to you? What are the questions you may see? It helps me see how people may be reading this, um, and it helps me see the things that I may need to address. And I went, okay, well, that's an important thing to address because that's not what Peter's talking about. That is not what Peter means when he says living in an understanding way. And when he writes living in an understanding way, the phrase very literally means living according to knowledge. Living according to knowledge. There's a certain thing that husbands are to know that should shape and inform the way in which they live. Knowledge should shape their lives. They should live according to knowledge or live in an understanding way. There's something that they need to understand, something that we need to know, something that we need to get. And right, there is a difference between some, simply knowing something to be true or knowing facts and understanding something. You think about if you're a teacher, right, one of those great moments when you see the light bulb turn on for a student. And you see that knowledge of multiplication tables turns into understanding. They get it. This is what Peter is getting at here. That there is the light bulb for husbands in which things they may have heard or things they may have read begins to get deeper than into their psyche as they then understand it. That turns uh, the light bulb on, and it begins to change the way they live. So what kind of knowledge should inform the way that they should be husbands? What are the things that they need to understand to shape and mold them into the husbands God's called them to be? Oh, friends, uh, there's probably in numerous ways in which we could tease this out. What I want to do, though, is walk through three things I think it's important for us to understand as husbands that will shape and mold the way particularly we are to then love our wives. The first thing I think that's important to understand, to know, is understanding who God is. And first, understanding who God is. Uh, this is the first important um, a sub-point of this, understanding who God is. If we don't understand who God is, we won't understand then how we are to relate to one another. Now, this is true not only for husbands and wives, friends. This is true for every relationship that you have. Uh, you hear this in so many ways in which Jesus has said. You think of the new commandment in John 13. Jesus says, you are to love one another as I have loved you. So he says, you've got to look and see who I am, what I've done for you, and that should shape and inform your love for one another. I mean, this is an important thing for us to understand. Again, whether it's our friends, whether it's in our vocation, 
We are not just simply called to be nice people or try to live good lives. We are first and foremost as Christians meant to look and see who God is. What is his character like? And we are meant to model him, to be ambassadors for him here in a world that doesn't know him. And so in an imperfect way, we are to then act like he would act if he were here. So that people, again, we've heard this from Jesus and with Peter, so that people who don't know God may see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. We're to be strangers and exiles here. But in order to do that, we have to understand who God is. That's applicable to all of us, but particularly for husbands and seeing the way that this plays out. And so, again, there's, we could spend the next 24 years talking about who God is and going through a study of him. So we're not going to do that. What I want to do is go to one verse and see aspects of who God is and the way in which that should shape and inform a marriage. When I think of understanding, maybe in, in, in comprehensive conciseness, who God is, I go to the place whenever Moses was in Exodus 34 and went, God, I want to see you. I want to know who you are. And God answers his prayer and reveals himself and tells him his name. And it's in this self-revelation in Exodus 34, 6 that you find this verse quoted everywhere in the Bible. Over and over and over again in the Psalms, it's the foundation of people's understanding of their relationship to God, their relationship to the world, comes back to this self-revelation of who God is. God says, here's what I am like. Exodus 34, 6, God tells this to Moses. Here's my name, Moses. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding and faithful love and truth. This is God's self-revelation, who he is. Well, what are the ways then as husbands, and really all of us, but particularly husbands this morning, should see who God is, understand who God is, and live according to that knowledge? Well, first we see that God is compassionate. God is moved as people that he loves that are made in his image walk through pain and suffering, as they hurt. And we see this with Jesus over and over again. Matthew 9, Jesus, it says that he sees the crowds and he's moved to compassion because they were hurt and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the pain that sin has caused in his creation, and to the people that he's created, made in his image. And the response of the Almighty is compassion. He's moved by their pain, by their suffering. Now, husbands, you are to model this and be compassionate, to be moved by the pains and fears of your wife, not to fix them, but to feel them. Not only is God compassionate, we see God is gracious. God is gracious in the way that he deals with his people. What does that mean? Well, friends, fundamentally it means that he has not treated us as we deserve. I'm grateful. A lot of times people raise a hand to God and say, God, it's not fair what you're doing. And I praise God that he is not fair. 
I praise God that he has not treated me fairly as my sins deserve. The ways that I've treated him, he does not look and go, I will, I will respond in kind. No, he is gracious. He sees stupid me doing the same things, believing the same lies, falling into the same sin, and he extends still his grace. He does not cast me out. When I return to him, I find always a father who's been looking for me, waiting for me, and runs to embrace me. He is gracious. Husbands, does that mark you? Does it mark your household? When you get into an argument with your wife, do you respond in kind? Or do you respond in grace? To give goodness, even when, especially when, it isn't deserved. To not offer a wage, but to offer a gift. Because God is slow to anger. He's patient. Certainly we see his hatred and anger expressed throughout the Bible. Oh, but friends, he gives time and time and time again. You just think of Pharaoh and the things that Pharaoh did to the Israelites in Exodus. All the way up to even having the male infants thrown into the Nile River and drowned. Evil and oppression, really almost as bad as you get in this world. And what does God do? He gives Pharaoh ten different opportunities to repent. Ten different plagues that he sends. And every time there's a chance for Pharaoh to go, all right, I get it. I'm not the king here. You are. But he doesn't. And ultimately, even after the tenth plague, the Passover, and the eldest son in Egypt was killed one night, he lets the people go, but then he changes his mind fairly quickly and begins to run after them. And God parts a sea for his people to walk through. And as Egypt runs behind and Pharaoh leads the world's strongest army behind chasing him and gets down into that sea, the waters fall and collapse on him. And what he had done earlier was now been done to him as he drowns. Oh, but friends, God was slow to anger. God is patient. He's not quick to blow a fuse He's not explosive. Husbands, does that describe you? Are you quick-tempered? It may be easy to take a personality test and blame it on a temperament, but friends, God does not give us that option. We are to model him, to represent him, and to be slow to anger, to have a long fuse, and to not be quick-tempered when you're wronged. Not sweeping things under the rug, but patiently engaging without exploding. We see also that God here in Exodus 34 is loyal and steadfast. When describing what kind of love he has, this is the word that's used. It's a loyal love, a steadfast love, a faithful love. It's important as we look at what God's love is like. It is not fickle. It is not based on God's particular feeling towards us in the moment. He does not fall out of love with his people. 
His love does not come and go. His love is loyal. His love is steadfast. His love is faithful. Husbands, does your love remain? Is there a sense in your marriage that you're not going anywhere for sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer? The promise to stay, I'm right here and I'm not going anywhere. That there be times when our emotions may be high and there are times when our emotions may be low. But the bedrock of the covenant promise is not how we feel in a moment. It's the promise that says, I do. Are you loyal and steadfast to remain and to not go anywhere, to stay by your wife's side, not resulting in uncertainty or insecurity, but in commitment and in safety? We see also that God is faithful. Or CSB translates it that God is truth. It's the same word here. God is truth. This word emet, it's the Hebrew word. It's the same root for the word amen. You see in the New Testament, you hear sometimes in church. Again, I know that we're predominantly a white church, so we don't say it as often and as loudly during the preaching. But I can hear some of the low mm's in the middle of the sermon, and I know what that means. There it is. It's that same root word, and what's being said there in that moment is whenever you hear something that's preached or you hear something that's sung, saying amen is the proclamation that says that's truth. Or the Greek Old Testament, as they went back and translated the Old Testament into Greek, it would translate to the word as so be it. That's truth. That's what God is, that he is truth. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. There's nothing in him that is uncertain. There's no shadow of turning in him. He is exactly who he says he is. He is steady. He is stable. He is reliable. We do not have to wonder if he will change his mind or if he will be different in 10 years. He is faithful. He is truth. Oh, husbands, is that true for you? Are you trustworthy? Steady, stable, reliable, not shifting sand, but a solid rock. Finally, we see in this verse, Exodus 34, 6, that God is love. It is his faithful or loyal love. His love for his people. Again, as I've already said in John 13, Jesus says this, that the way in which he has loved should inform all of our love for one another. But Paul in particular takes this understanding of God, that God is loved, that he has loved his people. Paul focuses on that understanding as he writes to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 5 that Ray read just a moment ago. And he hones in on that aspect and says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church. Love your wives as Christ has loved you. You are to see what Christ has done for you, his love for you, his affection for you, the way in which he, in a position of authority and leadership, did not use that authority for his own benefit, but he emptied himself for the sake of those that he was leading. He emptied himself so that others may be filled. He made himself 
poor so that others might become rich. Again, friends, this is, this is true in helping us understand any Christian authority. This is, a, oh, this is I, have to, I have to be careful. I'm about to go off on a tangent, but here we go. As we talked about last week, there is a, there is a hesitation to authority in our world today. We are resistant to it. Especially it feels like every generation, there's, a, there's more and more of a questioning, an eyebrow raising towards authority. Part of the reason is good. As the abuse of authority has been seen and called out, goodness, in the government, in jobs, and in marriages. Those in authority have abused that authority for their own gain, using those that they lead for their own personal benefit. And praise God that that is beginning to be seen and called out. Oh, friends, again, that is a Christian response. But now I've seen the response to that to be, well, then authority is bad. Those in authority should be questioned and are seen maybe even potentially as evil. Authority is bad, whether it's pastoral authority, a husband's authority, a government's authority, a boss's authority. They're automatically starting uh, in a negative position because authority is bad. And what I would say, the right response to the misuse and abuse of authority is not to throw it out the window, but to look and see, God, how have you used your authority and how can we model and follow you? What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. No one has had more authority than him. And what did he do with that authority? He left the praise of angels to come and be born in a manger. To live in a broken world. To be betrayed. To be crucified. To stand stand in the place of ruined sinners. And to die a death that we deserve. Drinking a cup of wrath on our behalf, lowering himself to the point of a servant, even becoming obedient to death and death on a cross. That's what he did with his authority. And he did that for the flourishing of those that he was leading. That's what good authority does. That's what Christian authority does as it models God's authority. As those in leadership are not using people they are leading for their own benefit, but they are looking, asking that same impulse that Jesus has. How can I lower myself sacrificially for the good of those and the flourishing of those that I'm leading? Friends, Christian bosses should be the best bosses to work for because they should look like Jesus. Christian husbands should be the best husbands in the world because we should look like Jesus. Christian senators should be the best senators in the world because they should be following in the steps of Jesus. And as we follow him, it leads to flourishing because God's the one that's made the world. It's his design. And so we step into then how we are to lead in that position of authority. And so what Paul, what Peter is saying here is, husbands, you need to live in an understanding way and see according to the knowledge of how God has loved you, that he is love and you should pattern your leadership after that love, particularly sacrificial love from a position of leadership. This is the unique way that God's character informs husbands that Paul talked about in Ephesians 5. He doesn't tell wives to do the exact same thing. There's a different relationship there. But husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's the unique way that God's character informs the way a husband should live in an understanding way. Oh, and friends, this call to husbands, in the same way for wives, to submit to and respect your husbands, those commands are not conditional. 
So Paul is not saying in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as long as she's being lovable. Wives, submit to your husbands as long as they're respectable. And as Christians, sojourners and exiles, the call is to follow Jesus and to love as he is loved. To obey him, for wives to submit to their husbands, to respect and recognize their leadership according to giftings within their own marriage. As the church submits to Christ. This is not conditional. It's important that we live according to the knowledge of who God is, understanding who God is, staring at him, and letting that knowledge shape the way that we live, particularly with wives. Not only should we need to understand who God is, we need to understand what marriage is, I believe. I think we need to understand what marriage is, the way in which God designed it, how husband and wives are different that there's not an equality there, that God has made this on his own, that he designed it. I looked on the internet, and the internet defined marriage this way, that the fundamental idea of marriage is to create a formalized partnership between two people. Is that what marriage is? Two people that are like, you know what, let's make this formal. Where's a piece of paper? I want to go to a courthouse right now. Let's sign it up. There's a formalized partnership between two people that maybe after a while you don't like them anymore and you can just step out of that agreement. Well, friends, marriage is not something that the world created. Marriage isn't something in which people are like, you know what, I'm like kind of lonely. I think it'd be nice to have someone of the opposite sex. Let's, yeah, let's get married. We can call it marriage. The marriage is something that's been designed by God. It was his idea. Marriage isn't something that the world did that God co-opted. Like, oh, that's a good idea. I can use that. God designed it. You go all the way back to the very beginning, and you see in the Garden of Eden, before there's even sin, God has instituted marriage, designed it in a way between Adam and Eve, the very first humans. And not only does he design that marriage, but he uh, officiates that wedding as he brings them together. And we see that marriage is a designed relationship by God, founded on a covenant between a man and a woman that's meant to display God's covenant relationship with his bride, with his church. That's the intent of it. Again, it's what we heard in Ephesians 5, that this relationship, a husband sacrificially loving and leading his wife, a wife submitting to and respecting her husband's leadership is meant to do what? To model Christ's sacrificial leadership as he laid down his life And to model then the church's response to that leadership and submission. That marriage is meant to be a living parable of God's relationship with his people. Which is described as his bride. It's not a social construct co-opted by God. It's his design. His idea. And it should accomplish his purposes. Marriage was designed by him and meant to display him. And friends, God loves marriage. Again, if you look at your Bible, the Bible begins and ends with a, with a wedding. There in Genesis 3, but also in, Gen- in Revelation 17, as Jesus comes back for his people, there is this image of the marriage supper of the Lamb. As Christ comes and there is this wedding, an incredible celebration that takes place. This incredible feast that takes place with Christ, the bridegroom, and all of his bride there gathered around that table. And so every time you go to a wedding and afterwards you go to the reception 
That reception is a small picture of that reality. It's meant to be filled with joy and feast and food and dancing. So when you go to a wedding and the wedding's done and you go to the reception, dance as hard as you can for the glory of God. It's meant to be a celebration. You Cupid shuffle until you can't Cupid shuffle anymore. So much of a wedding is meant to embody this reality. But friends, so is a marriage. It's designed to that end. And God made it in the garden. It was his idea. Ray Ortland, um, author of the book Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, puts it this way. He said, the most remarkable thing about marriage today is not that it can be troubled, but that we can still have this privilege at all. When God justly expelled us from the Garden of Eden, he did not take this gift back. He let us keep this priceless gift, though we sometimes misuse it. But what every married couple needs to know is that their marriage is a remnant of Eden. This is why every marriage is worth working at, worth fighting for. A marriage filled with hope in God is nothing less than an afterglow of the Garden of Eden, radiant with hope until perfection is finally restored. Oh, that a marriage is a remnant of Eden. It's a beautiful picture meant to display God's glorious relationship with his bride. And in order to do that, again, you hear it in Ephesians 5, in order to do that, there is differences in how God made men and how God made women and how they relate to one another. That it's meant to know what marriage is, God's design for marriage, that men and women are different. Again, there's a lot of debate about what submission means, but it, we can't say it doesn't mean nothing. God is saying there's a uniqueness in this relationship and how they're meant to relate to one another. And for us to be able to acknowledge as we look at the designer that God has made men and women differently. And for us, that's a beautiful thing. And what does it look like to step into those differences in a marriage? One author, Andrew Wilson, looking at the ways in which men and women are different and how they complement one another, um, noted this. He said that men, looking at sociological studies as well, men are typically more aggressive, competitive, fearless, likely to take risk, promiscuous, and prone to violence. Testosterone is aligned with higher levels of confidence, sex drive, and status assertion. Women are, on average, I guess it's important to hear those words, typically and on average. We're talking in generalities here, not every man and every woman. But women are, on average, more prone to neuroticism and agreeableness. Consequently, men are generally clustered at the upper and lower extremes of society. Men are not just more likely to be very rich or very powerful, which prompts all sorts of public debate, but also far more likely to be criminals, killers, homeless, excluded, or imprisoned, which it doesn't. Male groups are more characterized by sparring, fighting, power structures, and banter, while female groups are typically smaller, more indirect in confrontation, egalitarian in structure, verbally dex dexterous, dexterous, I should have thought about how to pronounce that before I'm here, but here we are, <laughs> and oriented around people rather than things. And these are generalities, but friends, these are studies that secular people are doing and finding out. These are not Christian conclusions. There is a difference between men and women. And right now, there's a fight to try to flatten it entirely. And what I, here's one of the things that I believe. There's a lot of things that as Christians, if we say this is how God has designed the world, that's what it means to follow Jesus, then the world will label you a certain way. Our culture may label you a bigot, no matter how loving or winsome you may be. That's certainly true, but I, 
I think, here's my hunch, and maybe I'm naive, but I think that especially as we begin to talk about God's design within marriage and the ways in which women, men and women are different, I think that there are people who aren't Christians, and maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you look around the world and you're going, I, like, I can get on board with a lot of things, but I, I can't understand the way the world is going and talking about men and women, that there's no difference, that, that we can just... We can change, that there's multiple genders, that men can compete with women. And you go, I don't know why, but this feels wrong. And I think that in a world that's going to be looking for truth, friends, as Christians, we have a designer and truth that we can stand on to see, well, this isn't an accident. God designed men and women this way, in a beautiful way, in a way in which most human civilizations have just intuitively known. But ours is beginning to really push against this. And I think this is what Peter's getting at in our text when he describes women as the weaker partner or weaker vessel, he's not describing them as ones who are just intellectually or emotionally inferior. I think he's talking, he's talking specifically about strength. They are physically weaker. There's a difference between men and women, again, generally. I know there are a lot of women in the world who are stronger than me. That is true. I'm not saying I'm stronger than every woman. What I'm saying is that if you look at the Olympics, the fastest man and the fastest woman, the man will always be faster. The strongest men and the strongest women, the men will always be stronger. The NBA will always beat the WNBA. That's not a knock on anything. That's the way in which the world is. It's the way in which men and women are. And that's not an accident. That's not a result of evolutionary consequence. This is a God-designed reality. And that's why whenever you take a man who's a mid-level athlete with other men and he goes and competes against women, he's breaking records because of this reality. And friends, in a world that's crazy, maybe you're here wanting to hear what could be true. But friends, Jesus Christ is true in the way in which he's lived and designed this world. This plays itself out not only in sports, but you look at different jobs. Women comprise 3% of the workforce in construction. Whenever I graduated um, from college, I went back home and worked construction for a year in a paper mill. If you've never been in a paper mill or around a paper mill, they smell terrible. It will drive through on the interstate like five miles away from them. The car, it's, that smell seeps into your car, and it's there for like two weeks. But I would go, work there for a year. We were in a construction company that was based there to work and fix anything that was broken. One day, I'm fairly certain, I was in the room where that smell originates. It was hideous. My friends, it was men that were around me. Why? Again, there's a lot of discussion about women in leadership roles or others, but in conversations about construction workers or plumbers or pipeline workers, the same conversation isn't had. Why? Well, because of the reality in which way God has, God has made men and women. There's this way in which men step into certain roles and women step into certain roles, not because of a social construct, but because of design. There's something there. Again, generally speaking, if you have a child, as they grow up, men will be, boys will be drawn to the little Nerf guns and the trucks, and girls will be drawn to something else. Now listen, of course, when I was growing up, my sister allowed me to play with her pink Barbie convertible, and I loved it at the time, but there is a sense in which there is something there. One um, non-Christian um, a journalist who's actually fairly um, aggressive against this conversation, against gender um, norms, was trying to raise her children in a gender uh, exclusive or gender neutral environment. And she just saw the way in which her children were drawn to certain things. And she said, I can't help but see that there is a there there. That's because God's designed it this way. 
And the vast majority of human civilization has known this intuitively. But for us in a culture where most of us have never had to fight for our homeland, had to settle a frontier, had to hunt for our own own food, this has become forgotten. And it's important to understand how God has made men and women and how he's designed marriage. So that as husbands, you can live with your wife in an understanding way to lead, to initiate, to pursue, to protect, to provide, to step in in that way, in a kind and compassionate way, in the way in which God has designed you to live. It's important to understand who God is, what marriage is. But third, it's also important to understand who your wife is. Having your eyes on God, have your eyes on the design of marriage, friends also, husbands, have your eyes on your wife and her unique personhood to understand her emotionally, to be curious about who she is and what she's like, to know one another. And that's why I think it's so profound in the Bible when the Bible describes a husband and wife coming together, when a husband describes that that sexual relationship and children are born, I think it's so profound the way in which the Bible describes it as a husband knowing his wife. It is not just a physical act to promote and and, uh, continue on the civilization. It is is an act of intimacy to know one another. Friends, do you know your wife? Do you understand her, her emotions, asking her what her fears are, what's currently causing her stress, what makes her eyes light up, what lets her soul rest, what makes her laugh, what does she dread doing? What do you do that really gets under her skin? How can you best engage in an argument with her? How does she feel most loved by you? Our husband's very applicably just after this sermon sitting down and going, how can I live in a more understanding way with you? Giving her time to think about it and then hearing what she may say. And stepping in and living with an understanding and knowledge of who your wife is, how God has made her, what her personality is like. Becoming a student, a lifelong learner of your wife. Striving for a PhD in who she is. And when you get it, get a double PhD after that. And never stop learning who she is. Be curious. Become a student of her. Because you will never completely understand her. You'll never get to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, well, I got it. I know exactly what she's thinking all the time and why. Hopefully you will never get there. But not, don't just strive to understand her emotionally. Also strive to understand her spiritually. Asking her what it is that she loves the most about Jesus. Does she feel right now close to God or distant? Does she have doubts about her faith and why? And then don't just come with a theological lecture after that. Listen to her. Engage. Seek to understand, not correct. Asking her what God's teaching her right now, what, she lo- what she's loving in the scriptures, what's confusing to you. Are there any ways for her that's hard to follow Jesus? Friends, can you engage with her according to that knowledge? Do you know what your wife's spiritual relationship is like? Does she know what yours is like? Do you know one another? This is the bedrock of a Christian marriage and living according to that knowledge. Our faith, our relationship with God is not a private matter meant not to be shared with others. This is what John F. Kennedy said in the presidential election in 1960. 
He was talking to a group of Protestant ministers who were worried that his Catholic faith, there's never been a Catholic president elected at that point, was going to dictate that someone from Rome was going to dictate what kind of president he would be. And his answer was this, talking to a group of Protestant ministers, uh, ministers as he was uh, on the campaign trail. He said, I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair, neither imposed by him upon the nation or imposed by the nation upon him as a condition to holding that office. It's a private affair, not meant to be shared. Friends, I think that that mindset has got its way into all sorts of corners of the church. And we need to know that your relationship with God is deeply personal, but it is never private. It is meant to be shared with your wife, with those around you, with people in your life who don't know Jesus. As part of the whole calling of the Christian life. It's personal, but it's not private. And so if you're here, you're a husband, you hear this, you go, I want to grow in my understanding of my wife. I want our marriage to take a step forward. We have felt as a church some of the strain on marriages, especially in the last eight months. There have been more couples that have reached out to us and said their marriage is struggling in the last eight months than the previous years combined. Now, I don't think that's because things are harder now. I think, praise God, people are coming and speaking. I think the problems exist. You know why? Because two sinners live with each other. And it's hard. And it's work. And in a culture in which we feel like we have to put our masks on and come to church and everything's good, we'll continue to not say anything. But when the gospel becomes something we not only say, but begins to seep into a culture, we can then come and go, uh, we're, we're struggling. We, we are arguing a lot. We are sharp with one another. And we don't know how to take a step forward. And we can know we can confess that to one another we can bring that to light and not fear condemnation or judgment but we can have brothers and sisters come alongside and begin to walk alongside us and if that's you that wants your marriage to grow and maybe you say your marriage is really struggling maybe your marriage is great whatever it might be one of the things that we're going to be doing next spring is going through a 14-week marriage enrichment class called re-engage it's a wonderful ministry out of watermark church in texas we led by Tim and Michelle Pine. They've done this before um, in a, uh, another church. And so wonderful ministry meant not as counseling, but it's meant for any marriage that says, I want my marriage to be better. If you say, hey, we're an 8 out of 10 right now, then it's for the people that go, I want to be 9 out of 10. If you're struggling and you say your marriage is 2 out of 10, well, this, this is there to be able to hopefully get it to a 3 or a 4 or 5. So it's for every marriage, this enrichment class is going to be happening again in the spring. But I want to go ahead and put it on your radar because it's going to be starting in January. And if we start announcing it in December, no one's going to remember it. So it's coming up in the future. Go ahead and mark it in your mind today. Oh, and husbands, go ask your wife today over lunch. Is this something you would want to do? Would you want our marriage to take a step forward? As, we can, as I can learn to live with you in an understanding way. If she says yes, then sign up. That's one way to just practically apply this text we'll shoot an email out to register this week so we can make that easy but that's one very practical way to do it to live with your wife in an understanding way knowing who god is knowing what marriage is and knowing who your wife is according to that knowledge friends each of those aspects should shape and form inform how you engage with your wife but the text doesn't end there and we'll go through this quickly as peter then also says you are to live in an honoring way because as you begin to think about the design for marriage, okay, husbands are called in, in leadership and authority to sacrificially love their wives. Well, there is a danger then to rule over your wives, to, to lead harshly with your wives. Uh, friends, this is, we see in Genesis 3, this is the bent 
even towards the fall for husbands. See the way in which this has happened in a culture, a society, and within the church. That authority has been abused and there's been a domineering leadership, a harshness, and not one like this. So how do we, be, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? Well, Peter says, here's how. You have to see your wife and honor her. Show her honor. Why? Because she is a co-heir of grace because they are worthy of honor. That's why you should live in an honoring way, because wives are worthy of honor. They're worthy of honor. They are co-heirs of grace. I mean, Peter, again, earlier in chapter 2, verse 17, said, honor everyone. Christians should honor everyone as those created in the image of God, but particularly husbands should look at their wives, not as someone who is just simply meant to obey them, but as a co-heir of grace and to show them honor. There's a uniqueness in that relationship. To honor everyone as a co-heir of grace, particularly your wives. That heir, that inheritance that's coming, Peter's already described in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Because of the great mercy of God, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wives do not have access to that inheritance through their husbands. They have access to that inheritance through their mediator, the man Christ Jesus. They do not need their husbands there. Their husbands and wives are co-heirs of that grace. Paul in Romans 8, 16 and 17 puts it this way. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. There is this grace that is coming. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the grace that Peter's talking about here is a future grace. This grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These co-heirs of the grace of life. That all that is the Son's will be then, all that is Christ, will be all those who follow in him. That we are one with him. We are united with him. We are co-heirs with him and co-heirs with one another. There is no distinction in that inheritance. There is no subservience in that inheritance. We are to show honor to our wives because God has shown honor, dignity, and value to them and naming them co-heirs of his inheritance and the grace that is to come. Live in an honoring way because they are, on, they are worthy of honor. Oh, my friends, also, husbands, you are to live in an honoring way because there are real consequences if we do not. There are real consequences. You hear at the very end of this text, to do all of this, live with your wives in an understanding way, as, the, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The interesting tag on at the end, isn't it? Peter's like, hey, listen, here's how you need to live with your wives. And if you don't, God won't listen to you. What do you mean, Peter? I think what Peter means is this. If you go to the, just a few verses down in, chapter, in verse 12, Peter's quoting Psalm 34. In verse 12, he says this. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. 
And Peter's teaching was a biblical truth and that anytime we sin, our sin, even as Christian, it obstructs our relationship with God. Both in our understanding and feeling of his love and affection towards us, but friends, also our prayers to him. They are affected. How? I don't know, but I know that they are. And I know that because they are, that should be a motivation to live a holy life. Because our sin obstructs and gets in the way of our relationship to God. And this Verse in verse 7, to live in an understanding way and show them honor. Husbands, this is not marital advice that you can follow or disregard or maybe easier based on personality profile. These are commands of Christ to all who would follow him. And to not do this is a disobedience and sin against your holy creator. You can't go, ah, my wife's hard to understand. I'm not going to live in an understanding way. That's hard to show her honor. I'm not going to do that. Friends, you're disobeying the holy God, and your prayers will be hindered as a result of it. Your fellowship with God. But maybe you feel distant from God. Maybe your relationship with God feels cold right now. And you're looking around, trying to figure out what sin it might be. Oh, friend, it very well may be your disobedience in this regard. Are you living with your wife in an understanding way? Are you showing her honor? Are you using her for your own convenience or comfort? Are you distancing her from you when she's not known or understood? Are you not allowing God's character or what marriage is to shape and inform the way in which you are to engage and love your wife? Friends, we see in all of this, husbands are to love their wife, not simply to white-knuckle and try harder. Because here's the reality, you're never going to do this perfectly. If you walk out of here and go, I'm going to start doing this every single day, you're going to fall short and there's going to be guilt that follows you the rest of your life. But what this is meant to do is to be held up as the thing to aim for, to look at Christ, to love our wives, to be a loving husband modeled after a loving Savior, that we are to look to him, to behold him, to stare at him, to begin to ponder and think about and meditate on and sing about and talk about the ways in which God has loved you the way in which Jesus has given himself up for you, the way in which his love has emptied himself for you, the way in which he took your place, the way in which God has been compassionate to you, slow to anger to you, loyal to you, faithful to you, and loving to you. And as you behold him and who he is and what he has done for you, most clearly expressed on the cross as the God of the universe was slaughtered and crucified by people that he made and people he was still holding together by the power of his word. To stand there and to die in your place because he loves you. To stare at him. To sit at the foot of the cross. To never lose sight of those mercies. And to be moved and affected in such a way that you go, Oh, how marvelous, how amazing is his grace. How could he love someone like me? How has he treated someone like me like that? And then when we are moved in worship, we then turn to our wives and we strive in the power of the Spirit with the confidence of Christ's security on us that even when we fail, he still holds us to begin to strive to love our wives as Christ has loved us. That's where we go. And so, husbands, as you leave here, don't just try to white-knuckle it. 
Behold Christ. Behold Him. And love your wives like He has loved you.